Hello and welcome to another Books of the Year podcast from your friends at Books of the Year. And I can only apologise for the fact that it's been so blooming long. This is for a number of reasons. One, uh, it was the summer. Two, I was poorly. In fact, still am. Three, Matt is in love with his horses to such an extent that he's not even here for this one. There's an empty chair here. He'd even read the Yung Chang book and then, because of horses, couldn't come in. So he's Jim Carnard himself out of the podcast. Anyway, you're going to get to hear uh, Yung Chang in just a moment. Uh, Rachel Stainton rhymes with painting. Simon and Matt, missing your funny and fantastic podcast. Last one I have is the Q&A from August 20. I know you're busy, Matt being horsey, and you both need holes. And Simon, I know you've been ill recently, but don't leave it too long, please. Began to think something is the matter with my podcast provider. Keep double-checking I'm subscribed and so on in hopeful anticipation. Rachel, here it is. There'll be a few along now. It's just we had a difficult period. You know what I'm saying? Um, Some of your correspondence about the Chris Norton book, In Search of Egypt's Lost Tombs. Jeremy Chudley. Firstly, thank you. I thoroughly enjoy the podcast and the fact that it's not stuffy at all makes things better to listen to. I am aware this is a very unhealthy sounding podcast, but hey, what can I do? So feedback um, I did. As mentioned on Twitter, I purchased Chris Norton's book, Lost Tombs of Egypt, solely based on the podcast, and it was better than expected. Factual, interesting, informative, well-written, no stupid jumps in logic as normally one expects from these sorts of books. I would like to suggest a couple of UK authors that could be interesting to interview, and they both have new books out soon. Mm-hmm. Ben Aranovich. Uh, Rivers of London series is great fun. I interviewed Ben for that, actually. Andy McDermott, thriller series, The Wild and Chase series. Good fun books with shooting and blowing things up. Anyway, keep up the good work. It's the only book-based podcast I bother to subscribe to. From Jeremy Chudley, rhyming with cuddly. Well, I hope you haven't gone looking for solace anywhere else, just because we haven't been around for a bit. But we will make up for it. Always assuming Matt can... Get his feet out of the stirrups. Um, Snoop is unconvinced. There's a reason they're lost. Some things are best left buried. Curiosity killed the cat. I don't think that's going to work. Um, Paul says, I just finished the entire Jack Reacher collection in chronological order. Is that sad? When's the next one due? And thanks to Books of the Year for the introduction. There is a new one called Blue Moon, which I think is out in a few weeks' time. Because this is the time of the year for a new Lee Child book. Francis Crossland just finished Treachery of Spies by Amanda Scott. Can't recommend it enough. I'm exhausted. Thanks to Books of the Year. Um, It's brilliant. Going to listen to the podcast again when I get home. This is going back a long way. So all of our uh, podcasts are available. Um, All of the authors are available for you to, to, uh, to listen to from where you got this podcast. And also hello to Lewis Johnson who says, Dear Sir, Madam, I cannot believe I'm able to locate you. My name is Lewis Johnson. I'm an estate attorney. I've been looking for you for some time. I never liked the sound of these kind of letters. The reason is that a person with your name is mentioned in one of my late clients' will as inheriting $10,725,000 US dollars. Due to confidentiality reasons, I cannot divulge more details to you until I hear back from you. Urgent response is required. This came in July. 
Uh, I've got to meet the time limit in filling in for the claim on your behalf. Oh, okay, well, uh, if you're if you're downloading this, Mr. Johnson, if you could just what we'll do is if you send us the ten million dollars, and then we will ask our uh, audience to write in and claim their share. Okay, because we'll hand it out because we are an autonomous anarchic commune here at Books of the Year and equal shares for everybody. So if you send us the $10,725,000, we'll share it out with our audience. Can't say fairer than that. That's Lewis Johnson uh, from Lewis Parker, Friedkin and Associates. Anyway, you never know quite what you're going to get. So uh, if you want to get in touch with us, I can't actually remember the email. It's booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. That's what it is. And you could tweet us at Books of the Year. So uh, there'll be plenty more of these on the way. Standing by now for our interview with Jung Chang. Okay, so let's introduce you to our top author on this week's podcast. And she is the author of Wild Swans. She is Jung Chang. Hello, Jung Chang. How are you? How are you? I'm, okay. I'm sorry. I, was, I, I thought you said, how are you to the audience? No, no, no. No, no, to me. no I'm okay. saying, how are you? I'm very sorry. I'm saying, how, yes. are you, how are you to you? How are you to me? Are you well? Yes, I'm very well. Thank you very much. Well, it's very, now, you won't remember, but we have spoken once before, uh, and this was for a five live interview, and you, would talk, you came in to talk about your biography of Chairman Mao, and completely by coincidence, although it might have felt as though it was well-produced. Chris Patton was our other guest, who you knew anyway, and of course was former governor of, of Hong Kong. And it was great. And you had a wonderful, and you had a wonderful chat. Do you, do you keep in touch with, with Chris Patton or was he just an occasional? Oh, I, 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 I see him from time to time yes. on, um, at parties things really oh, okay. occasions. yes uh, the that Mao book was astonishing uh, and left a profound impact on everybody who read it as indeed did wild swans your new book is big sister little sister red sister and then underneath it says three women at the heart of 20th century china so this will be a well-known story in china less well-known everywhere else tell introduce us t- tell us who Big sister, little sister, and red sister. Well, the three sisters are well known in the Chinese-speaking world, but their stories, the the real stories, are far from well known. And I'm I'm very pleased to say I've you know I've discovered a lot of things which surprised myself. Oh right. And the three sisters are very famous. they they were born in the late years of nineteen of the nineteenth century in Shanghai, and their parents were both devout Christians, and they had American education. Um, but the most extraordinary thing about them was that they made extraordinary marriages. Um, Red sister Qingling married somebody called the Sun Yat-sen, who was um, called the father of Republican China. He was the first person to um, to, to promote republicanism. Um, little sister Mei Ling married Chiang Kai-shek, the ruler of China before Mao, and big sister Ai Ling married somebody who was Chiang Kai-shek's prime minister and the finance minister for many years. Um, 
they there is a stereotype about them in the Chinese-speaking world. Um, there is a saying that once upon a time, there were three sisters in China. One loves money, one loves power, and one loves the people. Um, the one who loves the people is obviously the red sister because she was the only communist in this family, and she became Mao's vice chairman. And when she died, she became the honorary president of communist China. Um, and, um, um, well, I mean, they are very extraordinary themselves. Um, Red Sister Qingling, I just said, you know, how high she rose in, in, China, in Chinese politics. And um, there is a photograph in my book. Uh, in 1927, she was the leader of the then left-wing and the Leninist Nationalist Party before Chiang Kai-shek took uh, control of the party. And she was right in the core of the leadership. And when the photo was taken, she sat in the middle, whereas Mao, Mao Zedong, the leader of the Communist Party, later leader of the Communist Party, stood behind her. So she was that senior. Mm. And Madame Chiang Kai-shek, little sister, was China's first lady for 22 years when Chiang Kai-shek was in power. And she was one of the most famous women of her time, particularly during the Second World War when Chiang led the resistance in China against Japan. Um, and the uh, big sister, Eileen was really, I mean, according to her sister, little sister, she was the most brilliant of the, th of the family. And she was Chiang Kai-shek's unofficial advi main advisor. And Chiang Kai-shek listened to her more than to anyone else. And she made herself one of the richest women in China. And it was thanks to her that Chiang Kai-shek wanted to know her advice that her husband was made the prime minister and finance minister. When you, when you introduce them, and you were saying one loved money and one loved power and one loved her country, it makes it sound like a fairy tale. They sound like fairy tale sisters. Is that why this story is has some power or is that is that why this story is well known in China? Yes, indeed. I think they that they were fairy tale sisters. They were China's you know, China's most famous fairy tale. Um they were like China's princesses. Um I mean that that's why they were very famous. And in I mean that was also why I resisted for a long time writing about them. I didn't want to write about them because they were too much of fairy tale figures. I mean, they were not real to me in before I started writing about them. And they were, um, you know, they were caricatures. Um, but, and then I, instead of writing about them, after I finished my previous book, which was a biography of Empress Dowager Cixi, the last great royal ruler of China. 
And when I was thinking about writing somebody else, I decided not to write about the three sisters, but about Sun Yasian, because yes, now you've mentioned him before. So, so explain. So that, so your original starting point was you were going to write about him. About and him. Yes. So, and so why did that not happen? Well, then when I was doing my doing, I have done a lot of research. I found a lot about him, and then I, I, I got a bit um, bored. I mean, oh, really? I, I found <laughs> him. I found him to be um, absolutely single-mindedly um, pursuing power, a um, bit like Mao. There was often some sort of sense of déjà vu. I mean, I wrote Mao's biography yes. before, um, and um, so I, I sort of then I, I I just got annoyed. I got I got put out, and but instead, after all this research, I found that his wife and her sisters were really interesting. They were more interesting than he was. They're far more interesting than he was. They were more dimensional. They had more emotional depth. You know, they they were not single-minded. They're pursuing anything, power, money, or, or whatever. They were, they were they were real human beings, and they became real to me. And I became um, I became fascinated with them. So I decided to write about them. Just and and just before I ask you more about them, just to remind. Mind um, everybody uh, listening that you you grew up in in Mao's China. Yes. And then you came to this country. Yes. Um, uh, and then you wrote Wild Swans in in 1991 and the and the Chairman Mao biography. But am I right in saying that your books are banned in China? Yes, they're all banned in China. Are you banned in China? Uh, well, I'm banned in the sense that um, I'm a non person, um, or I'm not allowed to go to China except for two weeks a year to visit my mother. My mother is 88. She lives in Chengdu in China. And um, so I. So far, it seems that I've been able to do that. I hope that would continue. So when do you go next? I don't know yet. Um, I mean, my mother want, wants me to go back and see her at her on her birthday next year. Right. Um, I missed her birthday this year because, you know, the country has become more repressive and uh, so on. So so when you go over there, are you watched? I'm, what I'm going to ask you about is how you research and who you meet and who you interview yeah. to, to do this book. Because if you can only go to China for, for two weeks mm. a year, presumably they don't like you prowling around and talking to people. Well, um, now, I could go back to China freely until my biography of Mao was published in 2005 indeed in 2006 before between before the chinese when the chinese language edition was published and after that um i i lost my freedom to go back to china and um instead i could only go back for 15 days a, a, a year i mean the british foreign office helped me to get this privilege, mm-hmm. so to speak. So at the moment when I go back to China, I'm like going back in a bubble. I only go and see my mother. I, I, I'm on, I can't, can't do, do anything, anything else. else. But 
before this happened, after 2006, I had been free to travel, and I had done a lot of research for 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 Mao particularly. I mean, I was that was in the 1990s mainly, and early years yes. of the of the, of this end of the millennium, and um, when it was a golden time in terms of research, um, in Russia where. My husband, mainly John Halliday, did a lot of research, and he's my co-author with of the Mao biography. Um, the Russian archives were open. Yeltsin was in power, so he spent a lot of time working in the archives, which turned out to be a treasure trove. In China. Um, I interviewed about 200 people, you know, Mao's family, relatives, his colleagues, widows, and his staff, um, historical witnesses. And it was an incredible time. Um, and, and, and got a lot of um, documents which had been compiled and made available and published throughout the 1980s, yes. which was a relatively <clears throat> open time. So for researching this book, mm. you were heavily restricted. So where did you go and who did you speak to to do the research for this one? Well, fortunately, both, all three sisters were educated in America. So America is the main place for research. Their colleges, and they had a lot of connections with America. And two of them, the two um, little sister and big sister, chose to live in America. And so they spent many, many years in America, in New York. They were practically New Yorkers. So there were a lot of um, archives in America. Chiang Kai-shek kept a diary for 57 years of his life. And every day, he sat down and wrote his diary. And these diaries are incredibly personal. There were a lot of things about, about his relationship with his wife. And they are a relative addition to the literature about, uh, about this, um, the, the sisters. Um, and uh, those diaries are at Hoover Institute at Stanford in California. I mean, I, there were many, many sources in America. Mm, I can't tell you what sense of relief researching them, because, I mean, the archives in America can't be more helpful. I mean, they were just you know efficient, mm. helpful, and full of stuff. And in this country, in Britain, um, Q, the National Archives, um, are also full of stuff, and particularly, for example, about Sun Yat-sen, um, who spent a lot He's of He's the boring time. guy who you didn't want to write about. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> he was not boring. No, he's too single-minded. As a, as a too single-minded, as, yeah. a, as a politician. Um, I mean, he's he's boring. In, uh, he's not boring. I mean, he's sort of. Uh, what I mean is, I don't want to devote an entire book about him. Fair enough. I mean, the, you know, the world of even. I mean, also there is a lot of overlap with my research about Mao, and and about the Empress Dowager. So so it was relatively easy doing research. So I'm just going to do a quick reprise for listeners who are trying to catch up with with your Chinese lesson mm-hmm. here. So oh. Red Sister is Chingling. She's married to Sun Yat-sen, and she went on to become Mao's vice chair. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
<laughs> Little sister is Mei Ling, who married Chiang Kai-shek. Big sister is Ai Ling, and she got to be very successful and very rich. It is really interesting, I think, that you have a story of these three sisters, so important in the history of modern China, and yet there's so much of their formative years are spent in America uh, and UK, and you, and you have access to the to the archives there and yet they're so important and they and yet so much of it is accessible to you in the states that seems really strange uh well i mean they became uh, important and extraordinary after the return to china i mean the 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 archives but they set up their archives madame chiang kai-shek set up her archives in america so they collected the archive in america collected not just stuff of her college years, but her later years. That was where her archive right. was. And of course, um, I didn't mention Taiwan, which was the obvious place. I mean, Madame Chiang Kai-shek um, was driven to Taiwan together with her husband. Um, and she, there was a lot of there are a lot of stuff about her there. Taiwan is a democracy now, and the archives are open. Um, and, um, and then actually in China itself, a lot of the things have been made available in the past years. Right. Mm. Can I ask you to mm. to tell a story? <clears throat> one of the stories in the book. Mm. Um, there is a moment. It's kind of a turning point in the book. It would seem, I think, to. Uh, a first-time reader, where Qingling was abandoned by Sun Yat-sen when their home came under attack. Mm. And it's and she can't depend on him. Mm. And she takes matters into her own hands. And it's, it's quite, it seems a very significant moment. Could you just tell that story? Well, yes. 1922 was a very important moment in Red Sister's life. And that really laid the foundation of her becoming this Leninist, hardened Leninist Red Sister. And the reason was that he, she had been in love with Sun Yat-sen from 1915, and she married him against the wishes of her family. And in Shanghai, her parents actually locked her in her room, um, but she she climbed out of the window and went to Japan to marry Sun Yat-sen. Uh, when Sun Yat-sen was already married, so. Um, but she was passionately in love with, with him. And she wanted to die for him. And in 1922, there was this, uh, an attack was about to happen. And Sun Yat-sen left without her, fled without her. She offered to stay behind to cover his escape because she just... You know, she was passionately in love. And he left. But the thing is this. They had agreed that after he came to safety, he would send somebody to tell her. So she could also flee. But he didn't do that. He wanted her to stay put and to draw enemy fire. And so the attack would happen. 
And because if she had also escaped, there wouldn't be any attack. I mean, she, he wanted the attack to happen for his political goal, so he could make a counterattack and come back to power. And she didn't know this. And when she, she, when she fled, and it was extremely dangerous. The attack had already happened. I mean, the the guard of hers died, and she nearly died herself. And she suffered a miscarriage while she was fleeing, and was told she could, later told she could never have children. And this was devastating. I mean, you know, to cover her, your husband for his flee could be understood, but she didn't expect him not wanting her to flee. She, he wanted her to die, in other words. Mm. I mean, this blow was devastating. And when she realized that her love died, and instead she became a quite hard person, and she decided to do deals with her, with her husband. She didn't want to divorce her husband because she wanted to keep the title Madame Sun, Madame Sun Yassim, but she wanted her own political profile, and she got it. Um, and she became, you know, from in the, from 1922, she became a political, high-profile political person in her own right. Mm. Did the sisters like each other? They were very fond of each other. Um, particularly, I think the two, the big sister and little sister, um, were very fond of the red sister. And the red sister was also fond of her sisters, other two sisters. Um, but she became quite hard, and she was ready to not to have anything to do with them, to cast them out of her life, um, because she was helping Mao. Did, she did her best to help Mao to destroy Chiang Kai-shek, and of course, in doing so, to destroy her entire family. Yeah, so they were enemies, really? They were in enemy camps. They were in two enemy camps. But on the personal level, they kept um, a fond facade. Um, I mean, you know, also out of calculations, um, Red Sister wanted protection um, from Big Sister and Little Sister against the possible assassinations from by Chiang Kai-shek. And Chiang Kai-shek had planned various assassinations against the Red Sister, but he didn't carry through because he was he was thinking of his wife and um, and mm. Big Sister. And on the other hand, Chiang Kai-shek also claimed legitimacy from Sun Yat-sen's name. He because he was Sun Yat-sen's successor. Um, so in a way, he they also didn't want to make too much of an enemy of of Sun Yat-sen's widow. So their relationship was fascinating. I mean, they were emotionally in very um, strong. The bond was very strong. But they were also there was political calculation, and also they belonged to two antagonistic camps that were destroying each other. You mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, the fact that their parents were Christian. They were, they were Shanghai and they were uh, devoutly Christian. Does that work its way into any of the sisters' lives? I know at the conclusion of the book you talk about uh, solace from prayer and the Bible. and so. But 
does the religious the religious education work its way through Red Sister, Little Sister, and Big Sister? Big Sister was the most religious of the three sisters. Um, she was devout. Um, she prayed every day. And she, when she made herself uh, one of the richest women in China, she play, She prayed um, before making every major investment. <laughs> and um, also, because there is a lot of corruption, she was very corrupt. She made a lot of um, money out of China when China was at war with Japan and she used her privileged position to profit from the war, so to speak. Um, but she became convinced that this was God's will. I mean, God had sent her to life, to earth, to provide for her two illustrious sisters. And God had wanted her to make a lot of money to provide for her sisters. And that was her justification for money making. Hmm. And uh, so she could face all the condemnation, you know, constant American criticisms, condemnation from the, even the nationalist rank and file, not to mention the Chinese population. Um, but she had her religious belief to prop her, uh, to, 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 to fortify her. Yes. She doesn't and sound like the best ambassador for her faith. <laughs> if she was corrupt and taking money all the time? Well, no, she was not. <laughs> she was not. Um, but, but she sort of, she helped convert Chiang Kai-shek to Christianity, which is, had certainly modified Chiang Kai-shek's rule. Mm. Um, because in the 1920s, Chiang Kai-shek's rule was much harsher than later on. I mean, it was harsh later, but it was relatively a bit less harsh. A bit less harsh. And Big Sister played a role. And, and Big Sister was also instrumental in making Little Sister devout to Christianity. Um, what is it, and what is, they, I mean, they have an astonishing life, and this is a story that crosses three centuries. It's, it's extraordinary. What relevance does it have to China today? And we're speaking on the 70th anniversary of the Communist Party taking over, which I want to ask you about in just a moment. But do these three women have echoes in what's happening today? If, if your audience, if you had an audience in China, what would they make of this story? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, when I write my book, a book, the book, I always banish the idea of relevance to today out of my mind. I mean, I, I consciously don't want to make any, draw any lessons or try to, you know, tell people about the relevance. Um, because that way the book would have had an agenda and it would not have been a good book. Mm. I mean, so when I wrote the book, and it was entirely based on the facts I discovered and I, in, I write them as um, all these, the, the facts, the stories I've discovered um, lead me. Now, exactly how people would draw attention, I'm, I think I'm sure different people would draw different um, conclusions. Did you speak to your mother about this book? I did. Um, I did. Um, and she knows the story? 
she knows some of her stories, you know, their stories. Yeah. Um, I mean, very little, um, because um, as we said earlier, they were like fairy tale figures. I mean, you know, you never know what story is true, what story is 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 fantasy. I mean, there is a story which my mother knew. Um, and I knew when I was growing up in China, which was red sister Qingling had a, a lover, and she might have had married. She might have married him, um, who is her chief bodyguard, and half her, less than half of her age. Mm -hmm. And the story we in China all heard um, was that. Um, and they developed a relationship because she was old, she was wheelchair bound, and so this young man was carrying her on and off um, the bed and the wheelchair, and you know that was the story. And they they probably had married, and um, but the party had generously allowed her to keep her title, Madame Sun, um, you know, to save her mm. face. And my mother was asking me, you know, have you found out, and you know, the, what exactly happened? You know, such was the impact of the story, and she remembered the story for many years. And finally, Jung, can I ask you as someone, as I mentioned earlier, who grew up in Mao's China, mm -hmm experienced the Cultural Revolution, then came to Britain. We're all reading and watching about Hong Kong and reading about the 70th anniversary of the Communist Party taking over. What do, what do you, when you read the reports, when you see what's happening, what is what do you make of, what should we be making of what's happening in China and Hong Kong? Well, I, th I think what people are making, I mean, it's obvious. Yeah, I mean, Hong Kong people don't, the protesters don't want to live under communist rule. They don't want to live under 30% of communist rule, which is probably today. And they don't want to live under communist rule 100% and legitimately. In 28 years, when they're in their middle age and when their children are growing up, um, so that's, I, I feel that's probably what's happening in Hong Kong. I mean, I think Beijing recognizes it, and it says that what's happening in Hong Kong is a revolution of, you know, changing color. They want to somehow force China or Hong Kong to change color from red to, you know, something else, to democracy. Um, and um, I am, of course, I'm deeply interested in, I think it, this is an important moment in China. Are you fearful? I am, well, I can say I'm holding my breath um, for what's going to happen. Yes. Well, a lot of people are very nervous. Because they can't see it, they can't see what a good ending would be. They can't see that Beijing would let Hong Kong get away with too much more. I don't know. You know, I think the future is so difficult to predict. I mean, so much in the dictatorship 
and so much authoritarian rule, and so much it depends on almost sometimes by chance. I mean, you know, from writing this book, and of course writing about Mao and Empress Dowager, particularly writing this book, I feel this very strongly. I mean, Sun Yat-sen was the first to promote republicanism and was called the father of China because he happened to be in Hawaii when Hawaii became a republic, when when the word republic was on everybody's lips. And so he became the first person to promote republicanism. And his ambitions, um, his drives, and what what extent he would go to achieve his political ambitions shaped China's future. Had it been somebody else, and I see the other Republicans around Sun Yat-sen, had anyone else been the first to promote republicanism, China would probably have taken a different route. So I'm always worried about um, predicting or trying to predict what's going to happen. Yes, it's, it's worth saying that of all the places that people would expect your story to start. Hawaii is not one of them. But anyway, and that's exactly where it does start uh, with Sun Yat-sen. Do you know what you're going to write next, Jung? No, well, the thing is, you know... Each of your I, books takes up so much you, of your life. So much of my life. And also, I've always had to write my books twice. I'm, at the moment, translating my book into Chinese. Of course, it's banned in China, but it's published in democratic Taiwan. And um, and so I'm starting the whole process again. This is my next project right. to translating to translate the book into Chinese. But as you're writing a big story like this, I wonder if a little light bulb goes off and go, Oh, I might that's that might be good. I might that that could be my next story. I haven't had any of No light bulb moments. No, no light bulbs for okay. now. So it's just translation is what's going to be well, happening. Well, the thing is, you know, I, I feel somehow with this book, I have um, completed, in a way, in my mind, a kind of a trilogy about modern China. It, modern China started with Empress Dowager Cixi, whose biography I wrote, and uh, the current, um, then there was Mao, whose biography I wrote. And between them, the most important man was Sun Yat-sen, followed by Chiang Kai-shek. And the story of the three sisters also cover the stories of these two men. And so they are the bridge between Empress Dowager and Mao. And so I, I think, I mean, mm, I mean, you know, one most impo- interesting thing I discovered um, was that in this period of the bridge, China was a functioning democracy between 1913 and 1928 until when, when Chiang Kai-shek came to power and turned it into a dictatorship following, Chiang, following Sun Yat-sen's footsteps. And so that period was um, was was fascinating. I think this the fact that mm. th- this fact that this period was democracy in China was not known, and this fact itself is astonishing to me. S- so maybe something in that period. I mean, that is the only light bulb 
that flash. I'm intrigued. I'm fascinated head. already. <laughs> okay, well, come back in a few years' time when uh, yes. when that's happened. Jung Chang's book is Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister. Uh, Jung, thank you very much, Steve, for coming and appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks to Jung Chang uh, for coming in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for bearing with us. Uh, Matt, according to his latest messages, is going to make sure that he is here for the next proper interview show that we do. Now, frankly, when you're in love with yourself and a pair of jodhpurs and a whip, who knows what's going to happen next? Maybe we'll never see him again. I'm, you know, I'm just not promising anything. But there'll be a Q&A with Young Chang along shortly, and a brand new Books of the Year pod will be around the corner. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. <laughs> to be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.